are you this morning? Everybody's good? Well, I have a question for you today. I want to begin with a little moment of transparency. The church, you know, is, is the family of faith, and so we can be honest with each other, and what happens here stays in this room together as a family. I don't know if you've heard, Valentine's Day is this coming week. And so I'm curious, <clears throat> for those married men in the room, how many of you have already prepared a present or a gift or ordered one that is on the way? Let me see a show of hands from the men in the house. Liars, every single one of you. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. The longer you are in love, the longer you love somebody, I think the tougher it becomes. It, you have to think a little bit more. You have to work a little bit harder to make sure that you're communicating that, that you're showing that. Am I the only one, male or female, who feels that way? I mean, you know, let's be honest. When you first started dating that person, I mean, man, you, you, you would get in the car to drive to their house, and the butterflies would kind of start. Julie and I dated long distance. I was here in school in Austin at UT. She was in Waco at this little school on the Brazos, and we were dating long distance, but when I would drive up I-35 and hit Salado, man, the butterflies would kind of begin, and they would start, and, and then, you know, I'd get to the circle in Waco, and I'd see the sign for the Elite Cafe, and they'd kind of get a little bit bigger, and then I'd pull into the parking lot of the apartment where she stayed, and by the time I knocked on the door, I mean, I was amped up. I was like, oh, this is unbelievable. Now, what's interesting to me is after 22 and a half years of wedded bliss, those butterflies have not remained constant. How many of you know what I'm talking about? If you've been married for over 10 years, raise your hand. You, you know that the butterflies are not a constant. I mean, you wake up some days and you've got buffalo breath. You know what I mean? It's just like, ah, that's reality. That's life. It's amazing to me that it's so many people think love is a feeling, that, that you just kind of fall in love, right? I, I love that expression. I fell in love like I fell in a hole. It just just happened. I, I don't know what happened. I just I fell in love. And I, I just, you know, and then it's, you know, strawberry fields forever and, and everything's going to be cool, but feelings fade. But like the words of that song that we just heard, love stays. Love, real love, stays. And one of the things that I've noticed in my own life and experience and observation, but as well as just looking at other people, is the fact that real love is tough. Real love works. Matter of fact, tell your neighbor right now with passion and enthusiasm, love works. You, some of you weren't very passionate or enthusiastic about that. You know, I was on an airplane recently and began a conversation with a guy that just randomly kind of sat down next to me, and we talked for a little while, and finally he asked that faithful question that preachers get asked, he goes, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor of a church in Austin. And he was like, no way, you're kid, really? He goes, okay, let me ask you a question. He goes, you have kids? I said, yeah, I've got one in college and one in high school. And he goes, okay, here's my question for you. He goes, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a God guy, but I have a question for you. My question how do you get your kids to do the right thing? How, how do you get your kids to make Because I've known some preacher's kids, man, and they were off the wall. I mean, just nuts. And before I could even really think about it, this conversation was happening, kind of rapid fire stream of consciousness. And I just looked at him and I said, 
You know, the bottom line that we found through a lot of trial and a lot of error with our kids is that love works. He kind of looked at me. He goes, what, what do you mean love works? I was telling you, I was asking, how do you get your kids to obey? And I said, I know. I'm telling you, love works. I'll give you an example. For our two kids, Emily and Joseph, the very, very different polar opposite personalities, we had to communicate to them that what we were expecting of them, what we were telling them to do, where we set the bar in our household was where life worked best for them. We, we had to teach them. We couldn't just lead with, because I said so. How many of you, when you were growing up, made yourself a vow that you would never say that to your kids? Did you? I did. I remember. My mom and dad, every now and then, because I said so. And I said, I will never do that to my children. It is so wrong. And I was wrong. I remember, but we didn't lead with we were wrong. I mean, we didn't lead with because I said so. We sure didn't lead with I'm wrong. But our kids had to be educated. They had to see what was in it for them. Now, we, we had consequences. And what was interesting with our two kids, as different as they are, you know, Joseph is the younger of the two, and we could just say to him as a young child, Joseph, if you do so-and-so again, there will be consequences. And Joseph, would just, he was a born people pleaser like his mother used to be. And <laughs> Joseph would just say, not consequences. But his older sister, Emily, we would say, Emily, if you do that again, there will be consequences. And at four years old, if I'm lying, I'm dying. At four years old, she looked me dead in the eye and said, what are they? <laughs> but for Emily especially, and certainly for Joseph in, in a different kind of way, we had to show them we're setting these rules and these boundaries because we love you, because this is how life works best. In our household, honesty is a non-negotiable because that's how your life will work best. Julie used to tell our kids, you know what, people who tell lies don't sleep well, and you like to sleep. And just so you know, mommy always finds out everything. So from an early age, we began brainwashing our children, <laughs> teaching them that honesty is what works best. Love works in any relationship, maybe in the marketplace. Now, I don't encourage you to walk into your office tomorrow and walk into your boss and say, just so you know, I love you and I'm going to do a good job for you today. Don't do that. But by doing a good job at work, you're communicating value to the people around you. You're communicating that you really do care about them and the organization as a whole. In marriage, love works. And what I want to do in the time that we have left here today is kind of set up where we're going over the next few weeks. If you've got your Bible, I want you to look in 1 John Chapter number four, maybe you've got a Bible on your smartphone or your iPad, whatever you may be brought with you today, but I encourage you to take some notes as we go through this today, because I really am, I want to introduce where we're going, but I want to get there kind of a different way. The, the foundation, the bottom line for where we'll be over the next few weeks together as a church family is in 1 John chapter four. In 1 John four, the Bible says this, dear friends. Let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but 
anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. Now, I want you to look around the room this morning. Just, just take a minute and kind of look back over your shoulder. Look at all the people who came in late after you got here on time. I'm just teasing up there, and that's, that's just a little joke. Little. But look at the diversity of age, gender, race, backgrounds in this room just right now. And as many people are as in this room, or maybe downtown worshiping at Brazos Hall at Lake Hills Church downtown, there are that many perceptions, that many ideas and concepts of who God is, of what he is all about. And I want to make sure that we begin this series, that we begin any conversation about God with the understanding that the, at the core of his identity, the essence of his personality is this reality that God is love. Whatever else you want to believe about him, know that, that God is love. That's who he is. Every single thing that God does radiates out of that reality, of the fact that he is love. Tell your neighbor with passion and enthusiasm, God loves you. Now, if you had an argument with that person on the way to church today, that might have taken a little bit of effort to say out loud. But I want you to turn to the other person who, as you can already tell, is your second choice today, and tell that person, God loves you. And what I want to do is just kind of take some time and talk about what that really means. What that means for us from God, but what that means in our lives. We know that we love each other. We engage in love relationships, whether it's in marriage or in dating or as children and parents or even in friendship, that love comes from God. Now, I think it's important for us to make an admission at the very beginning of this series. There is no way we're going to be able to exhaustively and comprehensively unpack the mystery and the miracle of love. I mean, artists and poets have been trying for millennia. Scientists can't even really fully explain the biological, neurological, and physiological origins of love and where it comes from. They've tried, and they talk about how it helps to propagate the species because children attach to the mother, and that leads to sustainment, and they then survive, and the species is then furthered. But that doesn't explain the lifelong drive, the, the inherent need that we all have both to love and to be loved. But the Bible does. The Bible says just very, very clearly and very explicitly, love comes from God. This need that I have, that you have, is something that God has placed within us. And so that means that we get to spend a lifetime figuring out what that looks like, what that means, what that plays out as in our lives. I would suggest to you that love is the central need of every life. Now, of course, we've got biological needs, but spiritually and emotionally, everyone, 
everyone needs this thing called love. So I want to encourage you to take some notes as we go through this today. If you can take the program out that you got when you came in today. And I want to begin just with the simple statement that love is first and foremost a choice. Love is a choice. That means that it is not exclusively a feeling. Now, sometimes you feel it. Sometimes you have those butterflies and, and that romantic love. Sometimes you have that, that lust attraction, that, that chemical reaction that goes on like, whoa, that guy, that girl, they're hot. And that that's, can be a part of real love, but it's not the whole story. Real love is first and foremost a choice that we make. You know, I've talked with a lot of people over the years who have had different experiences in childbirth. And a lot of times when women give birth, there is a chemical reaction that causes them to just bubble over with love and affection for this newborn child that they brought into the world. And, and just as soon as it happens, they're just blown away. But then there are times too when that physiological response doesn't kick in. When, when a mother will say, you know, I don't even really like this thing that just got here. And, and I don't understand it. And there can be some very real guilt associated with that feeling. But that's because love is not exclusively a feeling. It is a choice that we make. And in those situations, a mother or a father that maybe doesn't connect will choose to love this infant no matter what, even though it maybe looks like a lizard that just got here. I love it when people say, all babies are beautiful. That's a lie. <laughs> I'm sure yours were, mine were, of course. But some babies, I mean, it's, you know, that, that, that can be a traumatic experience. And, you know, they get the little cone hit. They're wonderful and they're lovable, but they're, that doesn't mean they're attractive, always. But if love is a choice then why is it that we don't always choose to love? Why is it that for some people, it appears that the choice to love someone else almost never gets made, that their number one concern is always number one? I think it's, it's pretty self-evident, and especially as we look around observationally, the fact of the matter is that a lot of times we choose not to love because we're afraid. We choose not to love out of fear. Maybe we've been wounded before. Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe we've been left somewhere along the side of the relational road. And we've decided, I will never again feel like that. I will never again be taken advantage of. The fact of the matter is, love requires vulnerability. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. And this is something especially, not exclusively, but especially for men is tough. This is really, really tough for guys to be vulnerable because there's something inherent in the male psyche, just kind of in our chemical makeup. We are, we are conquerors, we are strivers, we are competitors. We, I mean, we, we are, you know, twisted blue steel, don't mess. And all of those things fly in the face of vulnerability. C.S. Lewis talked about this, among other things, but I think his words about love and vulnerability are especially, especially relevant even today. 
C.S. Lewis says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love is to be vulnerable. To be willing to give your heart to somebody else. To be willing to trust another person. Love is a choice. The second thing that I think we've got to remember is that love is encouragement. Love is encouragement. Now, let me make sure that, that you understand what I'm talking about and what I'm not talking about. When I say encouragement, I'm not talking about, you can do it, buddy. Just go get them. You hang in there. You get a trophy because you're breathing. I'm not talking about that kind of encouragement. I'm talking about the kind of encouragement that literally fills another person with courage. That it causes that other person to say, yes, I can. We will do this. Whatever it takes, let's go. That's the kind of courage that the Bible talks about love providing in a life. I remember when Julie and I got married. We were 24 and 22 years old, and, and I remember standing there before her uncle, who was also my pastor. I had grown up at Dr. Young's church at Second Baptist in Houston and had come through that ministry, and Dr. Young, if you've never met or seen on TV Dr. Ed Young, this is a strong personality. I discovered the fear of God through Dr. Young. I mean, he is a strong dude. And at Julie's and my wedding, he's also Julie's uncle, by the way. So there was a lot of stuff going on in that wedding, and here we are standing there at the altar, and I had come to the wedding altar, the child of a divorced home, and you know the statistics of children of divorced homes are statistically more likely to be divorced and all those kind of things, and Dr. Young got to the part of the ceremony where, where he was kind of issuing the charge, and I was kind of like, yes, sir, yes, sir, and all of a sudden, he stopped. He, he, he kind of got choked up, and he just stopped, and he closed his Bible, and he just looked, I mean, dead in the eye at Julie and me, and he's got these piercing blue eyes that just cut steel, and, and he looked at us, and then he did this. This is the most terrifying moment of my life. He goes, Mac and Julie, we believe in you. And I'm telling you, as a brand new husband, a newly minted groom, all of a sudden I just went, that's right you do. <laughs> I got this. Can I tell you how many times in the ensuing 22 and a half years I've gone back to that moment? When I didn't feel like working through a relational disagreement with Julie, when I didn't feel like bringing up a touchy subject maybe, and I've 
drawn from just that single statement, we believe in you. That's real encouragement. That gave me the courage to bring up a touchy subject. That gave me the courage to enter into a grace conversation where I didn't feel like it. Listen, if you love somebody long enough, you are going to enter what Scott Peck refers to as the tunnel of chaos. How many of you have been married more than 10 years? Let me just see a show of hands. Every hand here has taken a ride through the tunnel of chaos where you, where you say to your spouse the four most dreaded words to men everywhere, we need to talk. Because you don't know what's on the other side of that conversation. You don't know what you're about to enter into. And so there's a lot of uncertainty in that. And every guy in the world that has ever heard, we need to talk, has internally thought to himself, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) But it's worth it. And when you encourage other people, when you encourage someone that you love, you give them the safety and the permission to enter into that tunnel. To encourage is actually an act of love. Also, number three, love is service. Love is service. To really and truly love somebody means that you will serve them. I want to ask you to kind of put on your history cap for just a moment and think back to some of the most influential figures in the course of human history. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham was the father of two different religions. You you can go from Abraham and get to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the wealthiest man who ever lived. Books in the Bible penned by Solomon. You can go then to maybe Jesus. By any account, and whatever you believe or don't believe, you have to admit that Jesus has had an influence in this world. You you can go a little further and closer to home and talk about the prophet Muhammad. Muhammad has had a massive influence in this world. Gandhi, a massive influence. Martin Luther King Jr., a person of influence. Now, just taking those characters that I just mentioned at random from history, I don't think anyone could intelligently argue that any of them had more impact or influence than Jesus. That Jesus was the most influential of all of those that I just named or anybody else that you want to name. And yet, if you look at the life of Jesus, if you look at the words of Jesus, at the actions of Jesus. He wasn't wealthy. He he wasn't particularly popular. If you'll remember, he got killed. But he served. And it was his service that earned his influence. It was his service that led him on the night of his betrayal just before he went to the cross to get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of those that he was leading most in this world. Real love serves. And then Ephesians 5 comes along and tells me as a husband, maybe you as a husband, that we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loves the church. 
Ruh-roh. I mean, that's a little disconcerting, isn't it, guys? To think, I'm supposed to relationally and emotionally wash Julie's feet? That, that Jesus tuned into our spiritual and emotional and relational need before we ever knew there was a problem. And that's how we're supposed to love our wives. That, that Jesus actually paid attention. But you know what happens a lot of times? We like to retire our wife-winning jerseys. You know, we, we all have a uniform that we wear when we're dating, when we're recording. And, and we, we, man, we brush our teeth. We were creative. We were spontaneous. We're going out to eat. And then I've got a scavenger hunt planned. And then over the next few weeks, you're going to get chocolate-covered strawberries every day because you're just that special. And then we get on our knees. We have our friends cater a meal on Mount Bonnell. And we get down on one knee and we propose marriage. And she says yes. And we go to the wedding and we get married. And there's a honeymoon and we get home. And we raise our wife-winning jersey up to the banners, up to the rafters. Da-da-da, la-la-la. And then we sit in our appropriately named Lazy Boy. Wearing a wife beater, asking what time dinner's ready. <laughs> some of you women are laughing a little too loud. Because I've seen some wives retire their jerseys as well. But real love is an act of service. Real love pays attention to the other person's needs and chooses to address them and meet them. Also, number four, love is creative. Real love is creativity. Remember, God is love. What's the first thing we see God do in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created and so when you love somebody, you create new expressions of that love. You make an effort to keep it fresh and to keep it alive. And this is not restricted to romantic love. It's true as parents. It's true as friends. You, you make the effort. You keep it creative. You keep moving. You keep changing. You keep growing. Real love is creativity. Number five, and this may surprise you a little bit, but it's true. Real love is confrontation. Real love is confrontation. In love, but it's being willing to confront. Being willing to have that conversation. Because you love that person. A parent who doesn't confront her child about rude behavior doesn't love the child. But a parent who loves the child confronts, challenges lovingly. We had a phenomenal opportunity to see this lived out in a really interesting way. A few years ago, Julie and I were having a conversation with her mom. Her mom, Kathy, and her dad, Joe, had been married now for 48 years. How many of y'all are not yet 48 years old? Let me just see a show of hands. These people have been married longer than you've been alive, longer than I've been alive. 
And Kathy was sharing with us a moment that Joe had not really kind of, you know, rung the bell as a husband. And she was telling us this story about something that had happened kind of just in passing one day. And she goes, you know, the other day, Daddy was really kind of short with me. He, he was kind of abrupt, and, and I didn't really like it. He kind of just, like, snapped at me real quick. And, and I just thought, you know what? We've been married too long for this kind of nonsense. And I almost said something. <laughs> and Julie, Julie said, oh, no, Mom. You did not almost say something. That, that's, that's too drastic. But you know, a lot of times, especially if we've been in a relationship for a long time, we're kind of like, you know, is it really that big a deal? But real love is willing to confront. Let me just rush to tell you that Julie, my bride, has learned this lesson from her parents, and Julie really, really loves me. <laughs> she is more than willing to lovingly confront me. But I've realized after 22 and a half years, that's absolutely an act of love. Absolutely. It's confrontation. It's being willing to take the risk of having that hard conversation. And then number six, real love is truth. Real love tells the truth. You don't mislead somebody that you love. You certainly don't lie to somebody that you really and truly love. You know, as a parent, I, I can still remember the first time that, that Joseph told a lie to me as a dad. I remember Emily's first lie, as a matter of fact, also. And I remember as a dad being like, what? And now, as a guy, my initial response, maybe it's the testosterone, I don't know, but my initial response was like, you must be kidding me. You think you're going to get away with that? I am so much smarter than you. I am, we're going to deal with this. But as I kind of backed up from it, I realized I was really and truly just, I was hurt. I was like, I can't believe this little angel just told me a lie. I feed her. I buy him clothes. And here he's just, he just lied. And you get over those things as a parent. But that's why you teach your kids. You model for your kids that honesty in our home is a non-negotiable. You're not being creative. You're lying. And we don't do that. How many of you know that you can parse certain words down and say just the right thing to mislead somebody, but when confronted with it later, you can say, oh, no, 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 that's not what I said. It's, it's that whole nonsense about it depends on what your definition of is, is. That is a joke in our household. In our relationships, we don't parse words. We tell the truth. Be honest. People say, well, I wasn't dishonest. Well, you know what? There's a difference between being dishonest and being mishonest. You know what a mishonesty is? That's where you intentionally mislead somebody. And it's still a lie. If you create an impression that you know to be false in somebody else's mind and you let them go on with that, that's not telling the truth. But real love tells the truth. Real love is relentlessly 
honest. It just is. First John chapter 4 kind of plays out this idea that love is a choice. Verses 16 through 19, this is what the Bible says. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, because, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for the fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what your particular take on love is or or even what your take on God might be. You, You might be a skeptic. And I hope, if you are, that you know how welcome you are in this place. But I want to just conclude by asking you, how do you argue love? I mean, we we can argue philosophy. We can debate theology. But can you really and truly argue the existence and our need for love? I I think it's, it's a part of who we are. And I would like to just suggest to you that that need was given to you by God. That God created you specifically because he loves you specifically. And he created you like he created me with a need for him. With a need to know him and to be known. With a need to love him, and to be loved by him. And it is that need that is perfectly met in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus went to the cross for you by name. And he rose again from the dead for you by name. So that you could live in the love and truth and grace of God himself. That's what this whole thing is all about. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that love, you've never personally responded definitively, then we would love to invite you to do that just right now. In just a moment, I want to invite you to pray a prayer of relationship beginning. It would kind of equate to a spiritual wedding where you say to Jesus, I do. I'm in. Imperfectly, but I'm in completely. I want to ask you if you would bow your heads for just a moment. And as you do, I want to invite you 
to respond to his grace initiative. If you're here today and you've never done that, just to pray silently right where you're sitting. A prayer, just something like this. Just silently talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me. And in this moment, in exchange for your life, I give you mine. I choose to believe that you died for me, that you rose again for me because you love me. And so today, I choose to love you back once and for all. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed because this is a holy moment. It's sacred because of what God's doing in people's lives. And if you just prayed that prayer for the first time in your life and you meant it, I want to ask you, if you would just very quietly, but very definitively, if you would just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. As you hold your hands up, I want to explain why. For each of you with your hands up, that this is for you to mark this moment, to know that it's real. Because I promise you there will be another moment where you ask, what now? Or did that really happen? And it's imperative that you know God did this in your life right here, right now, at this moment in time. The Bible says that when one person steps into that relationship with Christ, all of heaven celebrates. So for each one of you, with your hands up, you're causing a heavenly party right now. And so for us as a church, the family of faith, we want to be a safe place for you. We want to serve you as you take these first steps in this new relationship. And we want to begin that by telling you that we love you, we want this to be a safe place for you. And as you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.